You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. I'm Christian Babcock, the host of the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. And what we do on the podcast is we talk to disruptive companies in the outdoor industry, talk about innovative hunting solutions that are changing the landscape, as well as offer you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. All in all, I just want to help you become a better hunter by providing you with high-quality knowledge and information that you can trust. Stay tuned. What's up, everybody? It's been a while since I did a podcast episode, but we're headed up to Oklahoma in about three weeks to do some turkey hunting up there. Hopefully, they'll be gobbling good and looking for love at that point in time, but um, also turkey season's already kicked off down here in in mid-Texas, so hopefully going to go try to get a goblin rio sometime this week if one of my friends decide he wants to go out um but apart from that kind of what else is on the schedule is just headed to iowa in may early may to film a few buddies that drew out for eastern turkey tags up there so it's going to be a really interesting spring would love to connect with you guys and see how your turkey season is going so feel free to shoot me a message or chat if you want to talk about some turkey hunting strats but uh Anyways, on this episode, we're going to talk to Cody Butler. Um, he's the host of Hunt with a Henry on YouTube. Works for Henry Henry Repeating Arms, which is some awesome repeating lever action rifles. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what we got going on this week. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Well, cool. Yeah, so I had uh, I had seen your video of Longhorn about I don't know okay. two two or three years ago, and yeah. I, I've been doing the podcast for uh, a, l- a little over a year now, um, you know, f- over 50 episodes in. I've talked to some awesome people ranging from Bear Archery to HHA Sports to um, Accubo, just a bunch of people. And yeah. I saw that you had been with you had been with Henry. I don't know. Uh, I'd love to dive in and talk talk about that and kind of how that progressed. But yeah, man, I thought you'd be a great guest for the podcast. And thanks for your willingness uh, just to jump on with me. I know scheduling is sometimes crazy. Uh, yeah, full-time no, jobs no, stuff like that i really appreciate that yeah no problem at all this week on the podcast i'm joined by cody butler um he's the host of hunt with a henry on youtube um, if you guys are familiar with henry repeating arms uh you've probably seen him on s- several of their social channels so cody why don't you just give the audience a little brief introduction in onto or into you and uh you know kind of maybe how you got started with henry yeah, it's actually a pretty crazy story. Um, I've been there for pretty much a year exactly now. Um, so not this last deer season, but the deer season before, um, I killed one of my biggest bucks ever during the Kansas rifle season. Um, a deer I'd been following for quite a while. We called him Epic. Um, and <laughs> they say God works in mysterious ways, I guess. But uh, I actually took one of my grandpa's old rifles out um, that day. And I made a really bad shot on the deer. He came out. I'd been hunting him for the whole season with a bow. Um, he wasn't really living on our property. And it was just by chance that uh, he finally came out into a food plot that I had planted specifically for him to come out in the late season. We got some snow on the ground and everything. Conditions were just perfect. He finally came out at about 176 yards. And I actually hit him high. Um, come to find out... Um, that it was how I had attached a bipod to my gun that was loose and 
it kind of caused the gun to shoot high. But anyway, um, it all worked out for the better because uh, the next day um, I went in with my Henry 44 Magnum uh, to go look for him, knowing that I'd probably had to uh, put a better shot on him. And uh, we found him. Um, I was able to kind of sneak around and get a shot on him with that 44 Magnum Henry and uh, put him down. Um, he's a 187-inch deer, um, just a absolute beautiful deer um unbelievable story um got a shed off of him we think he was probably seven and a half years old just from the history we had with him and um just just an absolute giant really cool buck um i then sent um a picture to henry um just saying you know thank you for making a great rifle i was able to put this deer down because of your guns and and stuff like that and kind of explain the story and um the social media guy over there kevin um, he actually just took it upon himself to kind of go check out my things that I was doing then. Um, I was doing a, my own little show on YouTube and things like that called dream chasers for a few years. And he kind of went over there and they were looking for somebody to, um, kind of host a new idea and show, um, that they wanted to do and kind of everything just fell into place. And next thing you know, I was working for them and hosting their stuff. And it's, uh, it's been quite a ride. They're a amazing company, hundred percent made in America. Um, do a lot of awesome things for different people across the United States. And, uh, it's been a huge, huge blessing to be able to work with them. That's for sure. Yeah. So is, what does this look like for you? Is it a, is it your full-time gig? Is there something you do on, on the side? So, so working for Henry is kind of a full-time job now. Um, I host the hunt with the Henry series and then I also help them, um, do several different, you know, marketing things on the hunting side of the company. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Henry's really trying to push their guns as, as hunting guns. Now, I, I think, uh, for several years, you know, I guess in my opinion, when I thought of the Henry rifles, you know, I kind of thought of the old cowboy lever actions, right. you know, and stuff like that. And they're they're really coming out with some different uh, firearms now that are catering more towards the hunter, um, things like that. They got their all-weather editions, which are just an absolute workhorse of a rifle. I mean, you can beat them up and put them through all sorts of stuff, and, and they're going to get you through. Um They've got uh, their new side load gate um, guns as well. Uh, one of my favorites is their Long Ranger series, which mm-hmm. is uh, it's a free floated um, barrel. They've got in 223, 243, um, 6.5 Creedmoor, and 308 now. Um, they're basically a lever action gun with the accuracy um, of a bolt gun. So, um, really, really great gun, really good firearm there. Um, you got that speed of that lever action. Um, but the accuracy of a bolt gun. So uh, we've been really impressed with those and had a lot of fun testing them and shooting them as well. No, that's awesome. I mean, I have a very special place in my heart for, you know, um, lever action rifles. I think one Me of the too. first deer I ever killed was was a thirty thirty, and I shot that gun for a long, long time. And yep. man, they really put them down. There's something special about getting to use a lever action. It, was, it took a long time is, for, for my dad to wean me off that. There, there is. I, I was, my first gun was, uh, was a lever action 3030 as well. Um, I actually killed my very first deer, um, with an old, old lever action 357 open sights at like 20 yards. Um, I shot a little spike with them. I was like six or seven years old, um, sitting on my dad's lap. And there's just something about a lever action. I've always loved them. They just feel like they're at home in my hands because I grew up using one. And, and, uh, you know, now you throw in something like that long ranger series, like I said, you know, you've got them in calibers 
cartridges that can reach out there and, and give you accuracy at long distance and, and still have that feel of a lever action. So it's been awesome to get them back in my hands, that's for sure. So every single one of these rifles, regardless of caliber, is still going to be a lever action rifle, just like you would expect from a Henry? Yes, uh, most of them are, yes. Uh, they do have a single shot series as well, um, and they do have some shotguns in that single shot series. Um, they've got 410s up to 12 gauge, um, so I think 410, 20, and 12 gauge, and then they also have their single shot rifle series, um, which I believe is 223, 243, um, and 308 right now. And they do have a single shot youth model 243 also for you know the kids out there and stuff that are getting into a, a gun. You know, 243 don't kick too bad, and single shot's easy for them to use, and um, great little gun. I actually just got one of those in for my wife to use, so... We're going to get it all set up and, and uh, get her shooting it. No, Awesome. That sounds like a good time. So, yeah. you know, so obviously the digital media, the filming, the editing and posting and producing content was kind of what mm-hmm. led to you obviously ending up at Henry. Where did all that yeah. start? You know, how did the, how did the filming journey start? What was the, what was the interest behind filming and documenting your hunts? Yeah, well, it's kind of a crazy story. Um, when I was younger, I always wanted to have a career in golf. Um, golfing was kind of a, a really big thing to me. Um, mm-hmm. Grew up, started when I was really young. Um, and But hunting was always my biggest passion, I guess. Um, grew up doing that with my dad and grandparents and um, was always ate up with hunting for sure. Um, as I got into high school, um, a guy actually moved to town here where I live in Nebraska that was filming for the Archer's Choice uh, with Ralph and Vicky Slanciero. And uh, he asked if I could, you know, wanted to get into filming or whatever. And I kind of started filming him and and learned that I had a talent, I guess, for for videography and photography and decided that that was where I wanted to go and went to college got a degree in, in videography and post-production and um, photography as well and um, kind of went from there and decided to, to turn that into, you know, my passion of hunting and put it all together and um, started a, a media business and started doing content for hunting companies and um, then kind of started my own, um, you know, YouTube social media show called Dream Chasers for a while just kind of for fun and and promoted the companies that I was working for um, on there, and and went from there. And next thing you know, we're we're working for Henry. So it's been been a fun ride, been a fun eleven, uh, ten years now, I guess. So yeah, of course. I mean, so what is <laughs> is, uh, is videoing? You know, uh, your your hunts is that something that you're committed to to the utmost? You know, sometimes you got guys that are, I, well. Basically, I say, guys, people like me that are that are videographers or willing to film mm-hmm. until it gets, you know, a little bit tough, and then they're like, "No, yeah, I just want yeah. I want to shoot a deer." So, have you um, ever lost? Have you ever lost any deer like that? Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> I always joke quite a bit every year. Um, I've been fortunate enough to uh, take some amazing whitetails and and different animals over the last several years and in, in my lifetime, but. There is definitely uh, a few that have been saved by the camera. Um, that is for <laughs> sure. Um, you mentioned uh, when we first started talking, um, probably before we started the podcast, about a deer called Longhorn. Mm-hmm. Um, that deer uh, was a really cool story. Um, was fortunate enough to have that one in North American Whitetail Magazine, and uh, you know that was a deer that I followed from two years old to five years old. Finally killed him at five. Started hunting him when he was four. And uh, I could have killed that deer at least three different times that I know of 
um, and let him walk because a camera guy couldn't get on him or maybe I was filming myself that day or just something didn't happen, you know, right. Um, and we let him walk and that was a tough decision. He was in an area that doesn't, I mean, it gets a decent amount of pressure. Um, I knew he wasn't going to go far, um, just for the fact that I really knew his home area. He lived in about a 40 acre square block of timber Mm -hmm. and didn't really leave too much. He was a really a homebody of a deer. Um, your video but in, for anyone that's yeah. listening obviously because this isn't a you can't visualize you can't visualize this so we have to explain this to someone this is just an absolute monster of a deer you know what yeah what is, is it like what is it was that was that the biggest buck of your life when you passed him he was the biggest deer with a bow yes at the time oh my goodness i mean so yeah. how you know what is it like being in full draw and and being on a deer being able to hunt a deer of that caliber i mean like relative to what you'd hunted in your life because I, I mean i've never even seen a deer that big I mean, how do you keep it together? Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's definitely it's definitely tough. Um, you know, he, he's probably the largest typical whitetail that was ever on what I consider our home farm. Um, I actually ended up killing him um, in Kansas on a small little part that we lease next to our home farm there. But we kind of all consider it our home farm. Um, he, like I said, he's probably the biggest typical that we ever had there. So, and I saw him a lot. Um, that's the thing, I, like I was saying before, he was kind of a homebody and lived in that little square area. And if, you, when I say square, this block of timber is literally like a square. So there's, there was no like specific funnels or, you know, corridors and things that I could really do to give an edge to getting him killed. It was just kind of luck of the draw. It's a tough place to hunt. Um, they can kind of see you coming from a long ways away. Mm-hmm. I love hunting it in the mornings um, because I can sometimes I'll get in there two hours before the sun comes up just because I know they're way out in the fields to come back in. And that's actually how we ended up killing him. But almost every time I went and hunted that deer, um, we saw him. I mean, and I didn't hunt him a ton. I was pretty smart about going in. I only went in when I knew I thought I could kill him. And, uh, you know, like I said, we had multiple opportunities, sometimes the camera you know, hurt me a little bit there. Um, one year, uh, the field, uh, there's a field that butts into that timber that I usually can hunt every year. Um, there was one year, the year when we far- first started hunting him, when he was four years old. Um, I wasn't able to hunt that field. The landowner of that field, um, wanted to let a relative of his hunt it that year. Um, so I did not lease that field that year. And I actually had him standing broadside at 36 yards in that field (laughs) and wasn't able to shoot him. Um, The farm sits directly on the Kansas-Nebraska border during the Nebraska rifle season when he was a four-year-old deer. Um, I actually had him walk. I was sitting on the state line facing Nebraska. I had him walk 20 yards behind me into Kansas. Wasn't able to shoot him because I was hunting in Nebraska on a Nebraska tag. Um, so things like that, I mean, that deer haunted me and every time you saw him, you just, it just gave you that fire to keep going after him. Um, but finally I was able to sneak in on a morning set. Um, the very first time I hunted that set, I hung it, uh, probably a week or two prior knowing it was right on the edge of his bedding area. And I just, I needed a perfect North wind. I actually needed a Northeast wind, which is something we don't get here very often. And I finally got one and we slipped in there and killed him the first time in. So it all worked out. Man, it's got to get kind of expensive trying to put in for Kansas every year, right? Because being right on that border. Do you guys try to get tags every year? 
Yes. Yeah, we do. Um, and it just depends for me. Um, I'm lucky enough that I have a lot of family ground um, mm-hmm. in Kansas. So most years I can get a landowner tag um, or a tenant license. Um, so that helps a lot as far as cost. Um, usually I only get a um, regular out-of-state tag if there's a deer on one of the leases that I want to go after. Otherwise, I'll let some of my buddies that come hunt, you know, hunt those leases. Um, for that, those couple of years I put in for a tag though, because I definitely, definitely was going to have to hunt him. <laughs> sure. No, absolutely. What did that deer end up scoring for people that are, that are on the phone? And can you kind of describe the yeah. rack? It's a super unique looking deer from my yeah. perspective, at least. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, he kind of, it depends how you score him. He's got kind of a goofy point on one side, um, that I've had a couple different guys look at. If you score that point, um, as typical, he's 185 and two eights, I believe, um, typical. And then if you take that away, um, he's 182 and three eights. So it's not, you know, either way it's, it, the score don't really matter to me too much. Um, sure. But yeah, he, he's just a big, wide-framed, um, typical six by seven. He's a six by eight if you count that one point. Um, it kind of is a common base on his G4 is the problem. It connects to that tine. Um, so I've had one scorer tell me that since it comes off the beam, um, that it is considered a point, and another tell me that it isn't because of how it connects to the G4. So, you know don't really care either way he's he's an awesome deer um he's got crazy crazy palmated mass on his main beams mm-hmm. um j- just an unbelievable whitetail yeah no that's for sure i mean i hear you keep saying numbers are like 180 inches which is absolutely insane and for yeah. anyone that hunts deer i mean what's the what's the management like for big deer like this are you guys is it a lot of farm ground that you guys are hunting um, specifically for deer or you're leasing out farm ground or um, what's what's it look like well, most everything I hunt is family owned. Um, so, uh, we do lease a few places that are, are, you know, kind of closer, but up to our family farms, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have a couple places, um, like I said, like that. And I, and where I ended up killing him was one of those places. Um, I kind of consider it my home farm just cause I've been able to hunt it my whole life. My dad could hunt it before me. Uh, we know the landowner really well. Um, and it is on our side of the river. It's kind of a weird how the land lays there. Um, but yeah, we, we put a lot of time in, um, we put a lot of time in for sure. Um, you know, try to hunt smart. We try to let deer get to maturity. Um, I did start hunting longhorn at four years old. He was 176 inches as a four-year-old. I have his match set of sheds. Um, and like I said, he was kind of in an area. Um, he didn't leave that 40 acre block of timber much, but you know, rifle hunters in nebraska which is the middle of november um you know that rifle season sits in a kind of a bad spot sometimes he'd like to travel during the rut at that time um people did have opportunities at him other than me and saw him so i definitely want to start hunting as a four-year-old but most of the time at least in the last three to four years we really want him to try to get to five years old if we can um but yeah we, we put a lot of time in i put a lot of food pots in a lot of trail cameras um managing whitetails i think i almost love more than hunting them i just i love seeing you know a plan come together putting all that time and effort in and and watching the deer pour out into a field or you know just watch them grow from year to year and there's there's kind of something something weird almost emotionally i guess when you follow a deer that long like i said i i first saw him when he was a two-year-old deer um he was a beautiful six by six as a two-year-old um probably right around the 130 mark and i just knew he was going to be 
a special, special deer. And when we could finally, you know, put all the time in and, and put him on the ground, it it's awesome that you finally accomplished your goal. But at the same time, you know, I sat there and thought to myself, man, I'm never going to get him on a trail camera again. I'm never going to be able to hunt him again, you know, all that. So, so it's kind of a, a catch 22, I guess. But, uh, when I come up here and, and see him hang on the wall, it, it's definitely a lot of awesome memories. Yeah, no, <clears throat> I mean, there's a lot of bittersweet moments when you get to see a deer like that on the wall. You know, Definitely. it's, it's, uh, it's an end of something, but at least you have the, <laughs> the rack and the, the taxidermy to, to reminisce. But I mean, I love what yeah. you said about, about managing deer, um, you know, versus hunting them, hunting them is mm-hmm. awesome. But I mean, one of my, one of my favorite things is managing deer as well. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, and, and when you do that, you know, shooting a mature deer is almost, is almost better than shooting a, a, a big deer. You know, I've got yeah. a lot of, yeah. I see a lot of really, really nice three-year-old deer, you know, that yep. anyone would be really proud to take, but being able to pass that up. I had one deer one year that he would have been an eight point, but he only had one side and he, he would, he was that way for three or four years in a row. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. God, watching him get five, six, seven years old, I would have traded him over 150 inch 10 point just because the, the story, yeah. the management, the, the being able to interact with a deer and full of deer of that maturity is absolutely 100%. insane. And I, that's oh, something yeah. that I would wish other people um, would get to experience. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, I want to kill a big deer, I guess, just as much as the next guy. But um, at the end of the day, I mean, a score of a rack doesn't mean as much to me as, as you know, the story of that deer, letting them, you know, reach maturity. Um, I always tell people, you know, what's the difference t- between killing a 140-inch six-year-old deer and a 190-inch six-year-old deer other than inches? I mean, there's still the same, you know, toughness of deer, I guess, to kill. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, like I've got a deer um, that we called Touchdown. I killed clear back in 2012. He was eight and a half years old. Um, that was a year when EHD was really bad in our area. And he is a 164-inch mainframe eight-pointer with a drop time. He's just a monster eight-pointer. Um, but he was 192 inches the year before. He had nice. went downhill that far um, from seven to eight. Um, but I would not trade, you know, him for the world. Um and he actually did have EHD um, when I shot him. Um, he survived it and lived till I shot him on November the 8th in 2012. And uh, you can tell one thing about EHD. Um, a lot of times I get what's called like the acorn points on their antlers where mm-hmm. probably like when they got infected, he's got all those bulbed out. So I'm sure that affected his growth some, but, um, you know, he was eight years old. He's, he was starting to go downhill a little bit um, for sure, but but just an amazing, another amazing story there too. So, you know, I could have killed him the year before and been 190, but instead I shot him when he was six years old and he's a, or seven years old and he's a, or no, I'm sorry, eight years old. And he's a, <laughs> and he's a 160, 64 inch eight pointer. So, you know, you don't see him that big very often. Yeah. So what is, what is an acorn point? Is that the, at the tip of the point when it starts to kind of bulb yeah, out it, almost like a light bulb? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I guess I call them acorn points. They just kind of look like, you know, an acorn grew up, you know, bulbed out on on the end of their tines. It can be kind of anywhere. I think it just kind of depends on, you know, when they got sick. I don't know if, you know, if that kind of starts stunting their growth. So, you know, their velvet isn't growing and it's, you know, just kind of sitting there at that time. Mm-hmm. And then once they kind of feel healthier and they start growing again, it causes that ball to be there. Um, you know, I've seen it on drought years and stuff like that as well, you know, where deer maybe are putting more energy, you know, into their bodies and not their antlers. So it causes the same type of deal. 
Um, but another thing, <clears throat> I actually had a game warden come look at him and said that he had it, but the biggest thing was his hooves were um, really cracked. And that's a, that was a, a huge sign of EHD, I guess, is what I was told, um, that their hooves get cracked. So, you know, he was, I guess that's another testament to management and, and, and having good food sources and, and healthy deer. You know, he was able to survive. He probably wouldn't have survived that winter, but he survived long enough for me to get an arrow at him. So that's, that's what matters, matters, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. I just wonder, because I got, I got this one friend, and it seems like every deer he shoots has this these little acorns on top of the horns. It's like almost uh, like a testament to the area that he's hunting. And yeah, and I might have to, should be. I might have to inform him that I think all of his deer have EHD now. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> and it definitely couldn't be a genetic in certain areas for sure. Sure. No, yeah, that makes total sense. So, I mean, with filming and videography, what are the what are some of the the things that you would recommend or maybe uh some of the equipment that you would recommend or how to start out for someone that's interested in in filming their hunts? I mean, I know that you probably have uh really high-end videography equipment and you obviously you mm-hmm. have the software and the skills to do that now after going to school, but for someone just wanting to start, you know, not wanting yeah. to create something but wanting to just document, you know, how do they get started doing that? Um, I think, you know, first of all, if you want to just get into it, I wouldn't go all out at first and get yourself a bunch of expensive stuff, you know, just get, get yourself a cheap camera. Don't worry about what it looks like. Don't worry about quality. Um, and just go out there and have fun with it and see if you enjoy it, you know, first, if you don't enjoy it, don't do it. Um, you know, this last year, starting with Henry, um, I had no ties to any archery stuff, any archery companies. Mm -hmm. Um, so I really enjoyed my year going out and, and I did all my bow hunts off camera pretty much this year. And I really enjoyed that. Hadn't done that in 10 years. Um, but by the end of the season, I was definitely missing it. Um, I missed kind of coming home and, you know, showing my family what I saw and, and things like that. So it was good to go out there and, and get a year, um, you know, season under my belt without filming, with a bow still obviously filmed with a rifle. Um, but you know, I think the biggest thing is just go out there and see if you enjoy it. If it's something you want to do, you know, if you do, then, you know, work your way up, save your money, maybe get yourself some better equipment. Um, but there's one thing, you know, I've always kind of been a stickler a little bit, just it's the videography side in me and stuff like that. And the things I learned in college, I know my professor said on the very first day of class, he's like, when you leave here, when you graduate, I'm going to ruin every movie, every TV show and everything you've ever watched (laughs) because once you learn how everything is done, you start seeing, you know, little mistakes people made maybe on cutaways and, you know, stuff like that. And it does, you know, you see it, but the biggest thing, um, but that's why I guess I've always been into high, higher quality stuff. But at the end of the day, one thing I've learned, the more I've done, this is story trumps everything. So, I don't care if you're going out there and filming something on your cell phone. If you've got a really good story, um, that's all that really matters. I mean, why do you tune into any TV show that you watch? Because you want to be entertained. Um, so as long as it's entertaining, you know, I think I think that's a huge part of it. And if you're just doing it for yourself, you know, just because you want to, you know, watch it on your own computer or just save those memories so you can go back and relive it, um, you know, that's great. So what what are some resources or some maybe some tips and, and tricks for someone that is wanting to be, you know, a better storyteller in the outdoors? They have, you know, the access to hunt high quality deer or high caliber deer or, or have awesome turkey hunts that they want to get on footage. They just have absolutely no idea, you know, how to start from an editing perspective. 
you know, how do you become a better storyteller? Because at first, you know, it's choppy and edits aren't, aren't mm-hmm. going to be all that good. But, you know, how do you lay it out, you know, maybe even from a, on a piece of paper, like laying out the narrative and writing it all? How, what's your process? What's your creative process of going through that? Um, I guess I usually don't um, write anything down. I mean, I do sometimes. Um, mostly I kind of just see it all in my head. Um, a lot of times, especially if I'm doing some type of film, maybe a commercial for a company, um, something like that. I, I kind of have a vision in my head and then, you know, go from there. Um, once in a while, I'll even say for a commercial I'm doing, maybe I'll even pick the music before I go film it. And then I'll kind of envision in my head how I want it to look based on that music. Um, mm-hmm. as far as telling story, you know, a story for, you know, a hunt, I think the biggest thing is just be real. Um, I think one thing that I notice in the filming industry right now is, you know, there's a lot of people out there that make it more about, I mean, I don't want to see, sound weird, I guess, make it more about them than about the hunting um, side of it. And mm-hmm. I really think, you know, stick true to yourself. Um, just be you. Don't try to be, you know, somebody you're not and go out there, have fun with it and uh, just tell your story how it happens. Yeah, no, that I think that's great advice. And one of the things is music. God, mm-hmm. dude, this is such a hard part of yeah. video. <laughs> yep. Where do you find where do you find music that you know that you think you can match with a video? Where's where's someone or where's a place where someone can find something like that? Um, there's a lot of different outlets out there. Um, some of the ones I when I first started, I think I was using a company called Pond Five. Um, I think there I've used some stuff from Premium Beat. Um, I've used stuff from Epidemic Sound. You can pretty much go out there and and find stuff anywhere if you do a quick Google search. There's a, there's a lot of different things out there. Um, the biggest thing is with music, you just gotta you know know what you're doing. There's a lot of licensing involved and stuff like that. Um, you know if you're just using things for personal use, sometimes you can even get stuff for free if it's not going to go out there. You know and be used for marketing material. You're not making money on it. If you are making money on it, or if it's even going to TV, you just want to make sure you have all your licensing and ducks in a row so you don't get in trouble, you know, that way for copyright stuff. Um, But I think my opinion and one thing I really tried to look, I guess, for my stuff is outside the hunting industry. So I really tried to follow, you know, how movies are made, how, um, you know, TV shows I really like are made, stuff like that. I really feel like music is such a huge thing. I mean, music can move people. It can change people's emotions, um, stuff like that. So I guess in, in my content, I've always tried to use um, music that that moves people in certain ways, makes you feel a certain way, um, maybe changes an emotion from happy to sad or, you know, things like that. Um, so music can definitely be a really powerful thing. So if you're you know really wanting to get into, you know, your own production stuff, um, definitely pay attention to how you're using music because it can definitely be, you know, make or break for how people see and portray, you know, your storytelling and stuff like that and how they feel as they're watching it. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's definitely true. Um, music moves me a certain way. Um, mm-hmm. especially when someone, when someone misses a deer or wounds a deer or something sad happens, it makes me extremely yeah. sad when they cut to the sad music. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. One thing we, one thing I think I skipped over was I, I wanted to get um, a little insight into maybe your personal filming setup. So I, I yeah. personally use like a Panasonic GH5. Um, mm-hmm. What do you, what do camera. you use for filming? Yeah, it's an awesome camera. I really like yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I actually recently made a switch. Um, it kind of just depends on 
what I guess I'm doing um, or what type of hunts I'm filming. I've been down the cinema camera line, you know, doing that type of stuff. I've had Canon, Sony's, um, things like that. It's great when you have a camera guy, um, you know, great when you're doing high end stuff. Um, I've actually kind of switched back to some different camcorder stuff here recently. Um, hmm. I'm actually running two different uh, one inch chip. They are one inch chip cameras. Um, I've always been a big fan of Canon colors. Um, yep. I just, I really like the way they look. Um, not that Sony and other companies aren't bad or aren't good, but I just really like um, the colors and how I can grade the colors of Canon. Um, so I've actually went to, I've got uh, two different ones actually right now. Uh, one is the Canon XA50. It's a one of their newest ones. It's a one inch uh, sensor chip. So it's got you know, bigger sensor, get a little more depth of field. Um, it really matches well with Canon cinema cameras. I've noticed, um, I, I like them a lot. Um, they're simple to use, especially if you're filming yourself. Um, one thing with the hunt with the Henry's, we really wanted to make those episodes look more documentary, I guess, if you will, more vlog like, um, mm -hmm. so I'd have done several of them filming myself, um, just to kind of give it that feel, that raw feel. Um, and then another one that I have is basically the same camera. It's just a little more on the higher end. Well, it just has a few more features, I guess. And that's an XA400. Or I'm sorry, XF400. Um, both have the same sensor, mix and match footage really well. Um, and then as far as like pictures, um, some of the bigger production stuff I do, um, people are probably won't even, a lot of people probably don't even know about them, but I actually just made a switch to Fujifilm. Mm -hmm. Um they, uh, I've been insanely impressed, um, with the quality I'm getting out of those, especially for the money. Um, they have a ton of features. Great, great. The biggest thing is their lenses. They have amazing lenses, um, really high quality. The ergonomics of the camera is unbelievable. If you're a video nerd like me and I just love the external dials. Um, they look really retro. Um, that's one thing right. I like about them. They're, they're pretty cool, but um, just love the colors I'm getting out of those. I have a lot of really neat picture profiles and, and different things like that that you can get into. Um, so that's kind of what I've been doing most of my bigger production stuff with is the Fujifilm cameras. And I, I just, I love them. I really, really do. Now, are those a, are those a full frame camera? Or are they are micro four thirds. Um, they're not micro four. They're actually APS-C, so they're 35 millimeter. So they're not, they're bigger than micro four thirds, but they're not quite as big as um, your full frame. They'd basically be like what your Canon and Sony cinema cameras are. So that 35 millimeter. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, no, I think the Olympus look very, very similar to like those Fuji films. They kind of look like an old retro yeah. camera. Mm -hmm. those, are, those are really cool looking. Yeah, so they are. For someone that's, you know, wanting to, gosh, I hear this cliche term all the time, like break into the hunting industry or find a job um, doing something that they love within, you know, whether that's marketing, product marketing, business development, sales, whatever it is um, in the hunting industry. How do you think someone would go about doing that, um, you know, from your personal experience? You know, I think it just kind of depends on what your passion is and, you know, where you're going with it. Um, you know, I guess if it's in the video side of things, I definitely think um, doing production work for companies would probably be where I would start. And, you know, you might have to start things not in the hunting industry. You know, I, I did things, 
you know, I started out doing some weddings, you know, and things like that. Just kind of get my foot in the door, see if I like it. Um, you know, get a portfolio made that you can, you know, some really good photography, videography, things you've done, go out there and just produce stuff, just make a great folder full of things that you have done that you can go out to a company and say, Hey, this is what I can do. Um, and just get your name out there. You know, I, I probably sent a gazillion emails, you know, to companies, uh, with portfolios attached and media kits and stuff like that, just, you know, showing what I could do. And, um, was fortunate enough to get a few of those to give me a chance and, and things grew and, um, it's just been great. So, I mean, the biggest thing is, you know, just don't give up on it. It don't happen overnight. You know, like this is my 10th or 11th year, um, you know, doing this and, and it's taken me 10 years to get to, I guess, the, the place where I am right now, you know, working for Henry, um, which is, you know, an amazing company, a dream company for me to work for. And I've worked for some great, you know, great companies out there. Um, but you know, when I got kind of a full-time gig going for Henry, it was a no brainer for sure. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I mean, I, I, I think it's so cool what we'd started talking about is just kind of the sentiment of an, an old lever action. I mean, I have a, it makes me think of, I have a, a Browning Belgium a five and mm-hmm. it's cracking. And so I have to put it in the closet and not use it anymore. I promised myself that this year. But yeah. <laughs> man, there's something there's something about using just an old old gun like that. Just something nostalgic mm-hmm. about it. I mean, I think about I've got a a, a black and white picture of my great grandpa, who oh, yeah. would, would be over a hundred years old right now with with the gun using it. And and I've got these stories of of my grandma saying, yeah, I mean, he he bought that gun on on layaway. You know, he made payments on it and he used it to kill yeah. you know dove and and squirrels and all these things to like provide for us. And I get to use that. And, and yeah, I don't know. I just think it's so, it's such a cool of a position that you're in with, with someone like a company like Henry, um, who, mm-hmm. you know, can, can provide a similar experience to that. Yeah. And, and I, I will say this, you know, for gosh, a lot of years, I, I'm not, I can't tell you exact year, but you know, maybe six, seven years, I basically didn't gun hunt. Um, you know, I, I was really into bow hunting, uh, that's what I love to do. And I'm not saying, I guess, that, um, you know, bows can't be passed down through the generations, you know, or whatever. Um, but I I guess once I, you know, I, I, I decided to rifle hunt, you know, a couple years ago and, and killed that deer I called Epic. I told you that story mm-hmm. that, that started, Henry. Um, you know, that decision, I guess, led to all this. And now that I've got back into the gun world, you know, you're right. I, I feel like there's something... There's just something special about, you know, an old gun that was, you know, I feel like guns can get passed down, you know, through the generations and they all have a story and, you know, guns a lot of times don't lose their value. I mean, some guns, I mean, I I was fortunate enough to inherit some guns from my grandfather when he passed away and he had an unbelievable collection. You know, some of those are worth more now than they were when he bought them. Um, You know, and it's, it's just, it's awesome like you said, you have that black and white picture. I've got some, you know, just the same. Um, I've got one um, of my grandpa when he was a little boy um, and his dad with one of the guns that I inherited down in Texas. that They shot a deer down there. You know, it's it's just there's just something about that. You know, like you said, nostalgia of it. There's something about passing that gun on. And the Henry name is is definitely something, you know, a, a company that you can get behind with that old nostalgia and it's just, it's really cool. 
Yeah, sometimes I wish you could take just a set of eyeballs and just imprint them in a barrel of a gun and just replay every single one of those memories over exactly. 50, 60, 70 years and things that that gun has seen. Exactly, I, yeah. And, yeah, that's just crazy. I actually, I don't know, I can't I don't know if I could find it again or not, but I, a year or so ago, I, I actually just recently, after my first year working for Henry, they sent me one of the original rifles and I, that I have hanging up here above a gun cabinet that's full of Henry's. And uh, I had seen something online. I, it might have been Facebook or Instagram or something that I, I want to say maybe in Colorado, somewhere in a mountain state, um, they found, these ranchers found an original Henry leaning up against a tree and it dated back to like almost civil war times like oh when they were first and it, and it had been it had been leaning up against that tree for that long now i mean the stock was cracked and weathered and terrible and it was all rusted out but for that gun to sit there that long like you it made me wonder like man what was the story about that was there some old mountain man up there that got killed by a grizzly bear and you know or, or was it just a a rancher up there building fence and forgot it, you know, or, I mean, it just makes you wonder how that gun got there and how it stayed there that many years with no one finding it. Wow. Yeah. That's absolutely insane. I mean, that's a yeah. testament to the, to the quality of a gun. I mean, what did he oh, drill yeah. it, drill it into the tree for it to sit there for that long? That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It must've just been sitting in a, you know, I don't know if he was in a valley or something to where the, the wind, you know, and weather couldn't get to it. I just, a crazy fluke deal <laughs> for sure. <Yeah. laughs> so what's I'll, the... I'll have to Google that when I get off of here no, and, and yeah. can too and, and see, but I, um, it was a neat article I read. No. Yeah. I would love to, I would love to read that, but you know, being made in America and not, not being a, one of these, you know, imported or, uh, one of these imported guns, you know, what's the, what's the manufacturing process? What's the uniqueness of, you know, kind of creating a Henry. And if you got to experience any of that, uh, since you've been there. I haven't got to experience any of the actual manufacturing stuff. I mean, I get to, you know, they bounce ideas off of me sometimes, you know, what would make a better hunting rifle, you know, things like that. Um, but I think, you know, the, the main thing Henry's slogan is, you know, made in America or not at all. Um, mm -hmm. And the owner, Anthony Imperato, I mean, he's just huge on, there is nothing that you can buy from Henry that is not made in America. So if you want a, a t-shirt from them, a hat, they every single thing is made in america um they're very proud of that um i'm proud of that being a part of it um you know i think especially in today's world all the crazy things going on um you know when you have a product that you know was made by an american you know right here in america with all american steel walnuts um you know they're supplying jobs for americans i think it's just it's awesome. And the, and the quality of, and the craftsmanship of every single rifle. I mean, those guys in that factory are putting their blood, sweat and tears into every one of these to make sure they're perfect when they go out the door. And if they all have a lifetime warranty. So, you know, if you go buy one off the shelf and, and for some reason it's not working correctly or it has a flaw, something's wrong, they're going to replace that or fix that rifle for you free of charge. Yeah, you can't, you can't put a price on that. I don't no. know how many I don't know how many pieces of crap I bought that you can't return. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, that's awesome, man. So your first season with with Henry this year, you know, how was it? Um, you know, actually moving back into rifle hunting, using Henry mm -hmm. rifles, filming for them. What was it like this year? You know, it, it was a lot of fun. Um, it was uh 
kind of stress free, I guess. You know, we went out there and and I really liked the way, you know, um, their communications director, Dan, and I kind of sat down before we got started and kind of came up with a vision and idea of how we wanted things to go. Um, kind of that vlog documentary style, that, you know, real feel. Um, just kind of, I wanted basically, you know, what I told him, I wanted people to be able to just come along with me, I guess. Instead of watching a show, I wanted them to feel like they were part of it. And I think we accomplished that. Um, it, it went well. It was actually one of my toughest deer seasons I've ever had, surprisingly. Um, but we made it, we made it work and we made it, uh, we made it work and, and had a lot of fun. We made some really good stories. Um, the coolest thing I killed a deer in Kansas, um, close to the end of rifle season. It was tough. We had really warm weather and just deer were not moving. Um, it wasn't just me. It was everyone in our area here, but, um, my grandfather that I mentioned, um, that passed away, um, he owns or owned a lot of the family properties that we have and, uh, kind of going back to, you know, God works in mysterious ways with me getting the Henry job. You know, if I would have made a perfect shot on that deer with my grandpa's gun and not killed him with a Henry, none of this would have ever happened. But, uh, kind of going along that, um, you know, we were hoping for some really good stories this year and, um, we had had a few, but not, not a real, just grabbing story and then um kansas season just ended up working so on december the 13th um, my grandfather's favorite number was 13 and he based a lot of stuff on his life uh with 13 like um how to say he was at a national Wild turkey federation banquet he always wanted the number 13 you know <laughs> to win stuff i mean just 13 sure. was just a, a big number for him you know he like his gun combinations to his safes always started with 13. I'm mean, just things like that, you know? Sure. And, uh, and he always, you know, told us about that and stuff like that. And he, he bought 13 farms, um, was his thing. And, uh, so I went to hunt on the 13th of December, the first Kansas farm that he purchased, um, out of the 13 and ended up killing a deer that day. So, you know, I had this tough season and ended up killing a deer on the first of 13 farms on the 13th with a Henry rifle. It was just a crazy, just surreal thing, Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Um, and to make that even crazier, the year he passed away, I shot a deer on November the 13th on the last farm, the 13th farm that he had purchased. <laughs> That's crazy, so, man. You know, people don't believe in in crazy things. You know, I guess I just take that as, you know, he's up there somewhere, uh, you know, taking care of me, I guess. So that's a pretty cool story we made there. No, that's that's awesome. I mean, I have a friend named Dave that he just now introduced this term to me, but he calls them God thumbprints. It's just these yeah. little moments where you can all you can do is look back and say, like, I totally I. I feel the connection with you. I understand these little thumbprints, these little thumbprints, these little moments, yeah. micro moments yep. that you're, you're showing yeah, me in my life. I feel like sometimes I go through these seasons, like this, this was one of my toughest seasons ever. I mean, it truly was. Um, this is one of the first seasons in, I don't even know how long I didn't kill a deer with a bow. I mean, I had several opportunities since I wasn't filming. I was pretty picky. Um, I did have one opportunity on a really big 10 pointer, um, he came in and I actually had him at three yards behind the tree. It was a cluster of a deal and I couldn't get him killed and, and stuff. But this was one of the first years I hadn't killed a deer with a bow. Um, 
so I mean it's <laughs> and then then you know to have I didn't I didn't actually kill a deer during the Nebraska rifle season um I filmed my buddy Jeremy Atkins that's the owner of Big and Jay shoot a really awesome deer with a Henry um we went out there together into western Nebraska but you know I passed a few deer I probably shouldn't have um but I didn't kill a deer with a gun in Nebraska and I'm, you know, trying to produce a show. <laughs> Luckily I filmed some <laughs> other people shoot some stuff with a Henry, sure. um, you know, but I was just kind of picky, I guess. And then, you know, just struggling. I mean, I was just struggling to find, you know, a couple specific deer that I wanted to kill. And I'm sitting here and wondering like, all right, Lord, uh, <laughs> we'll help you. It'd be great. You know? And then he throws me an amazing story like he did. So, um, you struggle and struggle and struggle you know sometimes you're wondering man is anybody listening and then you know it seems like when it's his time it's his time and he gives you an awesome story so yep i mean in the, even in the silence he's working and i mean his his timing's perfect i i've exactly. i've very much seen that played out in my life a- amen but cody man i really appreciate you you jumping on uh the podcast with me just for a few minutes here i would i'd love to have you um you know back on at, at a later date maybe as uh as definitely your, man anytime your, uh, yeah your relationship and your job and the, everything progresses with henry i mean uh, there's going to be a lot of more of these thumbprint moments quote unquote um definitely. that i would just love to hear about and document man but i, yeah, I man. really appreciate you jumping on hey no problem i thank you for having me and like i said you know happy to do it again Before we get started on the podcast, I just wanted to come to you guys with a special offer. I teamed up with HuntWise, the makers of the HuntWise app. They make a digital mapping software application for hunters. It allows you to tell the borders of public and private lands, who owns that land, how much land is there. Um, it's great for scouting you know, new WMAs or public parcels, as well as using the offline features to be hunting deep in the backcountry. And what's best is we have a special offer for listeners of this podcast. If you go to www.huntwise.com and use code HAP10 at checkout, you will get 10% off of the app. Once again, that's code HAP10 at www.huntwise.com. Now let's get to the episode.